Book One, Chapter Four of My Own Story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. The Making of a Militant, Chapter Four. To account for the phenomenal growth of the Women's Social and Political Union after it was established in London, to explain why it made such an instant appeal to women hitherto indifferent, I shall have to point out exactly wherein our society differs from all other suffrage associations. In the first place, our members are absolutely single-minded. They concentrate all their forces on one object, political equality with men. No member of the WSPU divides her attention between suffrage and other social reforms. We hold that both reason and justice dictate that women shall have a share in reforming the evils that affect society, especially those evils bearing directly on women themselves. Therefore we demand, before any other legislation whatever, the elementary justice of votes for women. There is not the slightest doubt that the women of Great Britain would have been enfranchised years ago had all the suffragists adopted this simple principle. They never did, and even today many English women refuse to adopt it. They are party members first and suffragists afterward, or they are suffragists part of the time and social theorists for the rest of the time. We further differ from other suffrage associations, or from others existing in 1906, in that we clearly perceive the political situation that solidly interposed between us and our enfranchisement. For seven years we had had a majority in the House of Commons pledged to vote favorably on a suffrage bill. The year before they had voted favorably on one, yet that bill did not become law. Why? Because even an overwhelming majority of private members are powerless to enact law in the face of a hostile government of eleven cabinet ministers. The private member of Parliament was once possessed of individual power and responsibility, but parliamentary usage and a changed conception of statesmanship have gradually lessened the functions of members. At the present time, their powers, for all practical purposes, are limited to helping to enact such measures as the government introduces, or in rare instances, private measures approved by the government. It is true that the House can revolt, can, by voting a lack of confidence in the government, force them to resign. But that almost never happens, and it is less likely now than formerly to happen. Figureheads don't revolt. This, then, was our situation. The government, all-powerful and consistently hostile, the rank-and-file of legislators impotent, the country apathetic, the women divided in their interests. The Women's Social and Political Union was established to meet this situation, and to overcome it. Moreover, we had a policy which, if persisted in long enough, could not possibly fail to overcome it. Do you wonder that we gained new members at every meeting we held? There was little formality about joining the Union. Any woman could become a member by paying a shilling, but at the same time she was required to sign a declaration of loyal adherence to our policy, and a pledge not to work for any political party until the women's vote was won. This is still our inflexible custom. Moreover, if at any time a member or a group of members loses faith in our policy, if anyone begins to suggest that some other policy ought to be substituted, or if she tries to confuse the issue by adding other policies, she ceases at once to be a member. Autocratic? Quite so. But, you may object, a suffrage organization ought to be democratic. Well, the members of the WSPU do not agree with you. We do not believe in the effectiveness of the ordinary suffrage organization. The WSPU is not hampered by a complexity of rules. We have no constitution and bylaws, nothing to be amended or tinkered with or quarreled over at an annual meeting. In fact, we have no annual meeting, no business sessions, no election of officers. The WSPU is simply a suffrage army in the field. It is purely a volunteer army, and no one is obliged to remain in it. Indeed, we don't want anybody to remain in it that does not ardently believe in the policy of the army. 
the foundation of our policy is opposition to a government who refuses votes to women to support by word or deed a government hostile to women's suffrage is simply to invite them to go on being hostile we oppose the liberal party because it is in power we would oppose a unionist government if it were in power and were opposed to women's suffrage we say to women that as long as they remain in the ranks of the liberal party they give their tacit approval to the government's anti-suffrage policy we say to members of parliament that as long as they support any of the government's policies they give their tacit approval to the anti-suffrage policy we call upon all sincere suffragists to leave the liberal party until women are given votes on equal terms with men we call upon all voters to vote against liberal candidates until the liberal government does justice to women we did not invent this policy it was most successfully pursued by mr parnell in his home rule struggle more than thirty-five years ago anyone who is old enough to remember the stirring days of parnell may recall how in eighteen eighty five the home rulers by persistently voting against the government in the house of commons forced the resignation of mr gladstone and his cabinet in the general election which followed the liberal party was again returned to power but by the slender majority of eighty four the home rulers having fought every liberal candidate even those who like my husband were enthusiastic believers in the home rule in order to control the house and keep his leadership mr gladstone was obliged to bring in a government home rule bill the downfall through private intrigue and the subsequent death of parnell prevented the bill from becoming law for many years afterward the irish nationalists had no leader strong enough to carry on parnell's anti-government policy but within late years it was resumed by mr james redmond with the result that the commons passed a home rule bill the contention of the old-fashioned suffragists and of the other politicians as well has always been that an educated public opinion will ultimately give votes to women without any great force being exerted in behalf of the reform we agree that public opinion must be educated but we contend that even an educated public opinion is useless unless it is vigorously utilized the keenest weapon is powerless unless it is courageously wielded in the year nineteen o six there was an immensely large public opinion in favor of women's suffrage but what good did that do to the cause we called upon the public for a great deal more than sympathy we called upon it to demand of the government to yield to public opinion and give women votes and we declared that we would wage war not only on all anti-suffrage forces but on all neutral and non-active forces every man with a vote was considered a foe to women's suffrage unless he was prepared to be actively a friend not that we believed that the campaign of education ought to be given up on the contrary we knew that education must go on and in much more vigorous fashion than ever before the first thing we did was to enter upon a sensational campaign to arouse the public to the importance of women's suffrage and to interest it in our plans for forcing the government's hands i think we can claim that our success in this regard was instant and that it has proved permanent from the very first in those early london days when we were few in numbers and very poor in purse we made the public aware of the women's suffrage movement as it had never been before we adopted salvation army methods and went out into the highways and the byways after converts we threw away all our conventional notions of what was ladylike and good form and we applied to our methods the one test question will it help just as the booths and their followers took religion to the street crowds in such fashion that the church people were horrified so we took suffrage to the general public in a manner that amazed and scandalized the other suffragists we had a lot of suffrage literature printed and day by day our members went forth and held street meetings selecting a favorable spot with a chair for a rostrum one of us would ring a bell until people began to stop to see what was going to happen what happened of course was a lively suffrage speech and the distribution of literature soon after our campaign had started the sound of the bell was a signal for a crowd to spring up as if by magic all over the neighborhood you heard the cry here are the suffragettes come on 
We covered London in this way. We never lacked an audience, and best of all, an audience to which the women's suffrage doctrine was new. We were increasing our favorable public as well as waking it up. Besides these street meetings, we held many hall and drawing-room meetings, and we got a great deal of press publicity, which was no something which was something never accorded the older suffrage methods. Our plans included the introduction of a government suffrage bill at the earliest possible moment, and in the spring of 1906 we sent a deputation of about thirty of our members to interview the Prime Minister, Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. The Prime Minister, it was stated, was not at home, so in a few days we sent another deputation. This time the servant agreed to carry our request to the Prime Minister. The women waited patiently on the doorstep of the official residence, number 10 Downing Street, for nearly an hour. Then the door opened and two men appeared. One of the men addressed the leader of the deputation roughly, ordering her and the others to leave. "'We have sent a message to the Prime Minister,' she replied, "'and we are waiting for the answer.' "'There will be no answer,' was the stern rejoinder, and the door closed." "'Yes, there will be an answer,' exclaimed the leader, and she seized the door-knocker and banged it sharply. Instantly the men reappeared, and one of them called to a policeman standing near, "'Take this woman in charge.' The order was obeyed, and the peaceful deputation saw its leader taken off to Cannon Row Station. Instantly the women protested vigorously. Annie Kenny began to address the crowd that had gathered, and Mrs. Drummond actually forced her way past the doorkeeper into the sacred residence of the Prime Minister of the British Empire. Her arrest and Annie's followed.' The three women were detained at the police station for about an hour, long enough, the Prime Minister probably thought, to frighten them thoroughly and teach them not to do such dreadful things again. Then he sent them word that he had decided not to prosecute them, but would, on the contrary, receive a deputation from the WSPU, and, if they cared to attend, from other suffrage societies as well. All the suffrage organizations at once began making preparations for the great event. At the same time, two hundred members of Parliament sent a petition to the Prime Minister, asking him to receive their committee that they might urge upon him the necessity of a government measure for women's suffrage. Sir Henry fixed May 19th as the day on which he would receive a joint deputation from Parliament and from the women's suffrage organizations. The WSPU determined to make the occasion as public as possible, and began preparations for a procession and a demonstration. When the day came, we assembled at the foot of the beautiful monument to the warrior queen, Boadicea, that guards the entrance to Westminster Bridge, and from there we marched to the Foreign Office. At the meeting, eight women spoke in behalf of an immediate suffrage measure, and Mr. Keir Hardy presented the argument for the suffrage members of Parliament. I spoke for the WSPU, and I tried to make the Prime Minister see that no business could be more pressing than ours. I told him that the group of women organized in our union felt so strongly the necessity for women enfranchisement that they were prepared to sacrifice for it everything they possessed, their means of livelihood, their very lives if necessary. I begged him to make such a sacrifice needless by doing us justice now. What answer do you think Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman made us? He assured us of his sympathy with our cause, his belief in its justice, and his confidence in our fitness to vote. And then he told us to have patience and wait. He could do nothing for us because some of his cabinet were opposed to us. And after a few more words, the usual vote of thanks was moved, and the deputation was dismissed. I had not expected anything better, but it wrung my heart to see the bitter disappointment of the WSPU women who had waited in the streets to hear from the leaders the result of the deputation. We held a great meeting of protest that afternoon, and determined to carry on our agitation with increased vigor. Now that it had been made plain that the government were resolved not to bring in a suffrage bill, there was nothing to do but to continue our policy of waking up the country, not only by public speeches and demonstrations, but by a constant heckling of cabinet ministers. 
since the memorable occasion when christabel pankhurst and annie kenny were thrown out of sir edward gray's meeting in manchester and afterward imprisoned for the crime of asking a courteous question we had not lost an opportunity of addressing the same question to every cabinet minister we could manage to encounter for this we have been unmercifully criticized and in a large number of cases most brutally handled in almost every one of my american meetings i was asked the question what good do you expect to accomplish by interrupting meetings is it possible that the time-honored almost sacred english privilege of interrupting is unknown in america i cannot imagine a political meeting from which the voice was entirely absent in england it is invariably present it is considered the inalienable right of the opposition to heckle the speaker and to hurl questions at him which are calculated to spoil his arguments for instance when liberals attend a conservative gathering they go prepared to shatter by witticisms and pointed questions all the best effects of the conservative orators the next day you will read in liberal newspapers headlines like these the voice in fine form short shrift for tory twaddle awkward answers from the enemy's platform in the body of the article you will learn that lord x found that the liberals at his meeting were more than a match for him that there was continued interruption during sir so-and-so's speech that lord m fared badly last night in his encounter with the voice or that captain z had the greatest difficulty in making himself heard in accordance with this custom we heckle cabinet ministers mr winston churchill for example is speaking one great question he exclaims remains to be settled and that is women's suffrage shouts a voice from the gallery mr churchill struggles on with his speech the men have been complaining of me the women have been complaining of you too mr churchill comes back promptly from the back of the hall in the circumstances what can we do but give votes to women our object of course is to keep women's suffrage in the foreground of interest and to insist on every possible occasion that no other reform advocated is of such immediate importance from the first the women's interruptions have been resented with unreasoning anger i remember hearing mr lloyd george saying once of a man who interrupted him let him remain i like interruptions they show that people holding different opinions to mine are present giving me a chance to convert them but when suffragists interrupt mr lloyd george he says something polite like this pay no attention to those cats mewing some of the ministers are more well-bred in their expressions but all are disdainful and resentful all see with approval the brutal ejection of the women by the liberal stewards at one meeting where mr lloyd george was speaking we interrupted with a question and he claimed the sympathy of the audience on the score that he was a friend to women's suffrage then why don't you do something to give votes to women was the obvious retort but mr lloyd evaded this by the counter-query why don't they go for their enemies why don't they go for their greatest enemy instantly all over the hall voices shouted asquith asquith for even at that early day it was known that the then chancellor of the exchequer was a stern foe of women's independence in the summer of nineteen o six together with other members of the w s p u i went to northampton where mr asquith was holding a large meeting in behalf of the government's education bills we organized a number of outdoor meetings and of course prepared to attend mr asquith's meeting in conversation with the president of the local women's liberal association i mentioned the fact that we expected to be put out and she indignantly declared that such a thing could not happen in northampton where the women had done so much for the liberal party i told her i hoped she would be at the meeting i had not intended to go myself my plans being to hold a meeting of my own outside the door but our members before mr asquith began to speak attempted to question him and were thrown out with violence so then turning my meeting over to them i slipped quietly into the hall and sat down in the front row of a division set apart for wives and women friends of the liberal leaders i sat there in silence hearing men interrupt the speaker and get answers to their questions 
at the close of the speech i stood up and addressing the chairman said i should like to ask mr asquith a question about education the chairman turned inquiringly to mr asquith who frowningly shook his head but without waiting for the chairman to say a word i continued mr asquith has said that the parents of children have a right to be consulted in the matter of their children's education especially upon such questions as the kind of religious instruction they should receive women or parents does not mr asquith think that women should have the right to control their children's education as men do through the vote at this point the steward seized me by the arms and shoulders and rushed me or rather dragged me for i soon lost my footing to the door and threw me out of the building the effect on the president of the northampton women's liberal association was most salutary she resigned her office and became a member of the w s p u perhaps her action was influenced farther by the press reports of the incident mr asquith was reported as saying after my ejection that it was difficult to enter into the minds of people who thought they could serve a cause which professed to appeal to the reason of the electors of the country by disturbing public meetings apparently he could enter into the minds of the men who disturbed public meetings to our custom of public heckling of the responsible members of the hostile government we added the practice of sending deputations to them for the purpose of presenting orderly arguments in favor of our cause after mr asquith had shown himself so uninformed as to the objects of suffragists we decided to ask him to receive a deputation from the w s p u to our polite letter mr asquith returned a cold refusal to be interviewed on any subject not connected with his particular office whereupon we wrote again reminding mr asquith that as a member of the government he was concerned with all questions likely to be dealt with by parliament we said that we urgently desired to put our question before him and that we would send a deputation to his house hoping that he would feel it his duty to receive us our first deputation was told that mr asquith was not at home he had in fact escaped from the house through the back door and had sped away in a fast motor-car two days later we sent a larger deputation of about thirty women to his house in cavendish square to be accurate the deputation got as near the house as the entrance to cavendish square there the women met a strong force of police who told them that they would not be permitted to go farther many of the women were carrying little votes for women banners and these the police tore from them in some cases with blows and insults seeing this the leader of the deputation cried out we will go forward you have no right to strike women like that the reply from a policeman near her was a blow to the face she screamed with pain and indignation whereupon the man grasped her by the throat and choked her against the park railings until she was blue in the face the young woman struggled and fought back and for this she was arrested on a charge of assaulting the police three other women were arrested one because in spite of the police she succeeded in ringing mr asquith's doorbell and another because she protested against the laughter of some ladies who had watched the affair from a drawing-room window she was a poor working woman and it seemed to her a terrible thing that rich and protected women should ridicule a cause that to her was so profoundly serious the fourth woman was taken in charge because after she had been pushed off the pavement she dared to step back charged with disorderly conduct these women were sentenced to six weeks in the second division they were given the option of a fine it is true but the payment of a fine would have been an acknowledgment of guilt which made such a course impossible the leader of the deputation was given a two-month sentence with the option of a fine of ten pounds she too refused to pay and was sent to prison but some unknown friend paid the fine secretly and she was released before the expiration of her sentence about the time these things were happening in london similar violence was offered our women in manchester where john burns lloyd george and winston churchill all three cabinet ministers were addressing a great liberal demonstration the women were there as usual to ask government support for our measure 
There, too, they were thrown out of the meeting, and three of them were sent to prison. There are people in England, plenty of them, who will tell you that the suffragettes were sent to prison for destroying property. The fact is that hundreds of women were arrested for exactly such offenses as I have described before it ever occurred to any of us to destroy property. We were determined at the beginning of our movement that we would make ourselves heard, that we would force the government to take up our question and answer it by action in Parliament. Perhaps you will see some parallel to our case in the stand taken in Massachusetts by the early abolitionists, Wendell Phillips and William Lloyd Garrison. They, too, had to fight bitterly, to face insult and arrest, because they insisted on being heard. And they were heard, and so in time were we. I think we began to be noticed in earnest after our first success in opposing a liberal candidate. This was in a by-election held at Cockermouth in August 1906. I shall have to explain that a by-election is a local election to fill a vacancy in Parliament caused by a death or resignation. The verdict of a by-election is considered as either an endorsement or a censure of the manner in which the government have fulfilled their pre-election pledges. So we went to Cockermouth and told the voters how the Liberal Party had fulfilled its pledges of democracy and lived up to its avowed belief in the rights of all the people. We told them of the rest in London of Manchester, of the shameful treatment of women in Liberal meetings, and we asked them to censure the government who had answered so brutally our demand for a vote. And we told them that the only rebuke the politicians would notice was a lost seat in Parliament, and on that ground we asked them to defeat the Liberal candidate. How we were ridiculed! with what scorn the newspapers declared that those wild women could never turn a single vote. Yet when the election was over, it was found that the Liberal candidate had lost the seat, which at the general election a little more than a year before had been won by a majority of 655. This time the Unionist candidate returned by a majority of 609. Tremendously elated, we hurried our forces off to another by-election. Now the ridicule was turned to a stormy abuse. Mind you, the Liberal government still refused to notice the women's question. They declared, through the Liberal press, that the defeat at Cockermouth was insignificant, and that anyhow it wasn't caused by the suffragettes, yet the Liberal leaders were furiously angry with the WSPU. Many of our members had been Liberal, and it was considered by the men that these women were little better than traitors. They were very foolish and ill-advised into the bargain, the Liberals said, because the vote, if won at all, must be gained from the Liberal Party and how did the women suppose the liberal party would ever give the vote to open and avowed enemies this sage argument was used also by the women liberals and the constitutional suffragists they advised us that the proper way was to work for the party we retorted that we had done that unsuccessfully for too many years already and persisted with the opposite method of persuasion throughout the summer and autumn we devoted ourselves to the by-election work sometimes actually defeating the Liberal candidate, sometimes reducing the Liberal majority, and always raising a tremendous sensation, and gaining hundreds of new members to the Union. In almost every neighborhood we visited, we left the nucleus of a local Union, so that before the year was out we had branches all over England, and many in Scotland and Wales. I especially remember a by-election in Wales, at which Mr. Samuel Evans, who had accepted an officership under the Crown, had to stand for re-election. Unfortunately, no candidate had been brought out against him so there was nothing for my companions and me to do but to make his campaign as lively as possible. Mr., now Sir Samuel Evans, was the man who had incensed women by talking out a suffrage resolution introduced to the house by Ker Haiti. So we went to two of his meetings and literally talked him out, breaking up the gatherings amid laughter and cheers of delighted crowds. On October 23rd, Parliament met for its autumn session, and we led a deputation to the House of Commons in another effort to induce the government to take action on women's suffrage. In accordance with orders given the police, only twenty of us were admitted to the strangers' lobby. 
we sent in for the chief liberal whip and asked him to take a message to the prime minister the message being the usual request to grant women the vote that session we also asked the prime minister if he intended to include the registration of qualified women voters in the provisions of the plural voting bill then under consideration the liberal whip came back with the reply that nothing could be done for women that session does the prime minister i asked hold out any hope for the women for any session during this parliament or at any future time the prime minister you will remember called himself a suffragist the liberal whip replied no miss pankhurst the prime minister does not what would a deputation of unenfranchised men have done in these circumstances men who knew themselves to be qualified to exercise the franchise who desperately needed the protection of the franchise and who had a majority of legislators in favor of giving them the franchise i hope they would have done at least as much as we did which was to start a meeting of protest on the spot the newspapers described our action as creating a disgraceful scene in the lobby of the house of commons but i think the history will otherwise describe it one of the women sprang up on a settee and began to address the crowd in less than a minute she was pulled down but instantly another woman took her place and after she had been dragged down still another sprang to her place and following her another and another until the order came to clear the lobby and we were all forced outside in the melee i was thrown to the floor and painfully hurt the women thinking me seriously injured crowded around me and refused to move until i was able to regain myself this angered the police who were still more incensed when they found out that the demonstration was continued outside eleven women were arrested including mr pethick lawrence our treasurer mrs cobden sanderson annie kenny and three more of our organizers and they were all sent to holloway for two months but the strength of our movement was proved by the number of volunteers who immediately came forward to carry on the work mrs took now han secretary of the w s p u joined the union at this time it had not occurred to the authorities that their action would have this effect they had thought to crush the union at a blow but they gave it the greatest impetus it had yet received the leaders of the older suffrage organizations for the time forgot their disapproval of our methods and joined with women writers physicians actresses artists and other prominent women in denouncing the affair as barbarous one more thing the authorities failed to take into account the condition of english prisons was known to be very bad but when two of our women were made so ill in holloway that they had to be released within a few days the politicians began to tremble for their prestige questions were asked in parliament concerning the advisability of treating the suffragettes not as common criminals but as political offenders with the right to confinement in the first division mr herbert gladstone the home secretary replied to these questions that he had no power to interfere with the magistrates decisions and could do nothing in the matter of the suffragettes punishment i shall ask you to remember this statement of mr herbert gladstone's as later we were able to prove it a deliberate falsehood although really the falsehood proved itself when the women by government order were released from prison when they had served just half their sentences the reason for this was that an important by-election was being held in the north of england and we had distributed broadcast throughout the constituency handbills telling the electors that nine women including the daughter of richard cobden were being held as common criminals by the liberal government who were asking for their votes i took a group of the released prisoners to huddersfield and they told prison stories to such effect that the liberal majority was reduced by five hundred forty votes as usual the liberal leaders denied that our work had anything to do with the slender majority by which the party retained the seat but among our souvenirs is a handbill one of thousands given out from the liberal headquarters men of huddersfield don't be misled by socialists the suffragettes or tories vote for Sherwell meanwhile other demonstrations had taken place before the house of commons and at christmas time twenty-one suffragettes were in holloway prison though they had committed no crime the government professed themselves unmoved and members of parliament spoke with the sneers of the self-made martyrs 
however a considerable group of members strongly moved by the passion and unquenchable ardor of this new order of suffragists met during the last week of the year and formed a committee whose object it was to press upon the government the necessity of giving the franchise to women during that parliament the committee resolved that its members would work to educate a wider public opinion on the question and especially to advocate suffrage when addressing meetings in their constituencies to take parliamentary action on every possible occasion and to induce as many members of parliament as possible to ballot for the introduction of a suffrage bill or motion next session our first year in london had borne wonderful fruits we had grown from a mere handful of women a family party the newspapers had derisively called us to a strong organization with branches all over the country permanent headquarters in clements inn strand we had found good financial backing and above all we had created a suffrage committee in the house of commons end of book one chapter four end of book one